Hello, everybody, and welcome to another special edition of the Renegade Arcade on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. This is Kiona. I am your host today, and today I am joined by Jason and John, who are the uh, creative director and director of Lost in Cult, which is an indie publishing startup, which has uh, launched their first Kickstarter, which is the Lock-On Gaming Journal, Volume 1, which just looks super, super cool. Uh, we're trying to get it funded. It's about, what is it, about 90% funded now? 90%, yep. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> I, let me just intro you guys in here and just say hello to John. Hi, how you doing? And to Jason, hello. Hello, Kiona, how you doing? Doing great, man, doing great. Thank you guys so much for coming on board with us and for sharing, um, you know, some some tidbits and secrets, hopefully, about your projects. It's <laughs> our pleasure. Uh, really glad to be on here today. Um, first off, what I would like to uh, discuss with you is your history in gaming, because I know that you guys have an extensive one. Um, so what did you play growing up, and what were some of your favorite games and some of your favorite consoles? Oh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm a single child. You, you know, I was a bit spoiled growing up. Uh, so my first console was the Game Boy, and then uh, my mum, my mother... Well, I call her mum in the UK. Uh, she got sure. me a Super Nintendo. Uh, I think you call it Super NES over there, don't you? Yep, yep. Yeah, okay. and the uh, Sega Mega Drive. So I had both at the same time and then um, ended up getting the PlayStation. And, uh, you know, N64. And then just by mm-hmm. chance, I got into the Dreamcast and I've pretty much had most of the, the well-known consoles ever since then. Uh, you know, I've, I've grown up with, Fortunately, growing up uh, back in that time when we had a lot of uh, you know revolutionary games and series, so yes. you know a lot of the a lot of the ones that mean the most to me were like the Resident Evil games, Final Fantasy, starting mm-hmm. from Seven, mm-hmm. uh, Metal Gear Solid, uh, Shenmue. You know a lot of Sega games. Um, it's too many to mention, really. And then it, you know, uh, God, where, where do I begin with this? But um, I, I feel lucky that I, I, you know, I was born in the eighties and had the, the opportunity to play all of these great games, and then Same even here. seen some of those games get remasters. And uh, yeah, it's it's just an amazing hobby to have, and uh, you know, and to have been a part of you know a lot of stuff from near enough the beginning, really. Um, so yeah, that's me. <laughs> and for you, John, I, uh, I my my earliest memories were the. Uh... Sega Master System. Um, nice. I, wow. remember, I, I remember being a wee lad and playing uh, playing several games on that with my dad, uh, including Sonic, etc. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, and then I remember we then moved on to the uh, Sega Mega Drive, which is one of my all-time favorite consoles. Uh, I have so many great memories of that system. And then uh, I was never really a Nintendo person. Um, I grew up with Sega, and then we went straight to PlayStation. Mm-hmm. So my dad got a PlayStation One. So we used to always go down, you know, by the latest game. That's how I fell in love with titles like Resident Evil, Oddworld, Final Fantasy. Um, And then I remember I got into Nintendo via the Game Boy Advance. I mean, as a child, I played Pokemon. Everyone played Pokemon, obviously. And I remember um, that was the only game I played on my Game Boy. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then when I got older, we got a Game Boy Advance. Um, Trying to think what I played on it. Sonic Advanced was absolutely incredible. Uh, Zelda the Minish Cap titles like that uh, when I became a teenager I started to move more towards um, 
or obscure titles. Mm-hmm. Um, I went. Uh, sorry, two seconds. Um, no, no worries. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, as I uh, as I got older, I moved into more obscure titles. Uh, I started uh, becoming fascinated with video games. I uh, I moved into collecting PC Engine, uh, any Japanese obscure systems I could get. So I imported the Japanese 64DD, which was the N64 expansion wow. port. Yes, um, yes. Oh my gosh. I uh, I got involved <laughs> with the the, uh, the NEC PCFX, which was a really obscure system that absolutely tanked, but it had a couple of good games on it. Uh, and I was. was... I, I think that was known as the the Turbo Duo in the U.S. I believe like it was the, it was it was after that actually. So was the Turbo it after Duo, that? Okay. Yeah. The, so the Turbo Duo was the PC Engine prior. Then they moved into a console called the PCFX. Um, oh. It was pretty much only released in Japan, and it mainly had lots of like wow. <laughs> anime story driven games. But it had uh-huh. some cool like cult classics on there. Uh, and then after that, I became obsessed with a system called the FM Towns Marty, uh, and that was because <laughs> I love a game called Splatterhouse. Yes, it's one of my all-time favorite series, and I, 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 oh my gosh. I had to, I had to track one down to get the uh, the original Splatterhouse Big Box Edition, and it's yes. the only arcade perfect port on any console. So I became obsessed with that, and then as I got older, amazing PS2, PS3, etc. You know, as we all got mm-hmm. a bit more modern, didn't we? And all those yes, kind of yes. classics dipped off into the past. Yeah, but I've kind of um, I've I've been uh, been interested in all of gaming really. Mm-hmm. And I've not, I, I've never really stuck to one platform. I just wanted to play the games. Uh, as time's gone on, I've found myself more linked to PlayStation because I like story-driven games, like offline, you know, story-driven experiences. So that's probably why I've lent in that direction now. Mm-hmm. I've recently mm-hmm. fallen in love with the Nintendo Switch, which I adore the Nintendo Switch. I think I, it's an incredible system. I still need to get one. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You're I in for a treat. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're in for an absolute <laughs> treat with that one. Um. Yeah, actually, what what you were saying just now, it it brought back a memory of like one of my favorite gaming magazines in the past was a a, a magazine called Game Fan or Die Hard Game Fan back in the day. Uh, okay. And they were you know, they they were kind of an infamous publication, you know, because there were a lot of behind the scenes shenanigans and there was a lot of like, uh, the one issue had a particularly notorious typo in it, uh, and and this issue okay. that I do have where there was a, a racist slip in the, you oh, know, in the, in the text that they were um, mm. using for like, um, what do they call that? It was just placeholder text. Okay. And it got printed and oh, yeah. And then that happened. Um, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> in the, the later years of the magazine, when their uh, editorial team had turned over, they, uh, there was a guy who wrote an, a, a piece, like a news article in, in the magazine. And he had said something about like, you know, or like it was a response to a letter, I believe. And the person was saying, you know, why are you guys so biased against, you know, such and such system and all this stuff? And they said, no, it's about the games. We love the games. We're called game fan, not system fan. Yeah. I thought that was a, that was a funny line. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, there's so many, there, there's the console wars, which are still going on to this day. And it just, you know, and it just seems like, why don't we just love them all, including the PC? I have grown to really love my PC as a gaming machine, as well as, a, you know, as a workhorse for all the stuff that I do. Um, and so, like, you know, for me growing up, it was, it was, the NES was my first system. And, uh, and mm. then it was the Sega Genesis or the Mega Drive. And um, then it just, you know, it, it snowballed from there. It's like the Game Boy and the Game Boy Advance and the Sega Saturn. I actually had a Saturn. 
I still have I it, the I think. Science. It's yeah. in the garage. Yeah, yeah. That was an awesome, like, 2D machine. Like, 2D Absolutely. games. It was amazing. Guardian Bad Heroes. PS1. My God. And, yes, oh, and then so. the PS1 was, you know, just, like, it was the future. And we didn't we didn't know the extent of it, but we knew that something cool was coming, and we knew that it had arrived with the PS One. Mm-hmm. Um, I switched to Xbox actually instead of getting the PS Two and PS Three. So, oh, which is interesting, but you know, um, yeah, that I mean, was actually it was due to a friend who said that you know uh, I had a Dreamcast as well, and he said don't get the PlayStation Two because Sony killed off Sega. Yeah. And there you go. There's <laughs> oh. the console wars mentality. And it's you like, know, you know, I should have just got a PS2 also, you know, because it's it, they had a lot of good games. It's interesting you say sides and everything. Uh, for me personally, I've always been driven by a certain series of games. Um, yes. Coming back to John, you know, he mentioned about Splatterhouse and like trying to attain yeah. a certain system to play that perfect version of the game. Um, now, I got into the Dreamcast for a friend because... I was obsessed with Resident Evil, you know, as a mm. kid, and also mm. Final Fantasy. And, you know, I, I've seen things in the in one of the magazines we had at the time, I think it was called Games Master, about the next generation Resident Evil, and this was called Code Veronica. Yes. And I, I had one friend at school who had this thing called the Sega Dreamcast. And, you know, I obviously knew about it. I'd never played on one. And I went to his house one day, and he, uh, I was on the back of his BMX, and um, yeah, on our school lunch break, he took me to his house and they had this little console there. And I just thought, oh, I don't need this. I've got a PlayStation. He, you know, um, it, you know what can this do? And he, he turned it on and this game called Soul Calibur. And I'd oh, never yeah. seen graphics like yes. it before. And I thought, yes. I can't believe what I'm seeing. These graphics are absolutely incredible. And then um, I just said, have you got Resident Evil Code Fonica? I, I need to play that. I need to see what it looks like. I went, I haven't. So the next day, I went. I went to uh, our town centre. I sold a load of stuff, and I bought a copy of Resident Evil Code Veronica. And then I said to my friend, "I've got a ten pound note. Here, well, uh, ten British pound coins here. And um, would you let me borrow your Dreamcast for the weekend?" And he said yes. You know, he wanted some money, and I spent <laughs> all weekend playing on Resident Evil Code Veronica and uh, oh, playing these other games. And I just fell in love with this system and. Thankfully enough, I got one later that year. And, um, you know, I've always been driven by a series. So when, obviously, yes. we found out that the Resident Evil series was going to be exclusive to the GameCube, the upcoming GameCube, um, I had to get a GameCube. Uh-huh. So I I had I naturally got the PlayStation 2. And then um, in early 2002, when the original Xbox and GameCube were launching, I regret this very much so. I sold my entire Dreamcast collection. I had the entire PAL collection, all the games available in the United Kingdom. I sold everything, traded them all in to get an Xbox and a GameCube at launch. So I had all three consoles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, each brought something special to the table, all their own exclusives. So, you know, I had to obviously get the GameCube to get Resident Evil 1 Remake, Zero, then 4. You know, I, I had to get a 3DS to get uh, Resident Evil Revelations. I had to get a PSP to get Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core. Mm-hmm. So f- for me, it, it's always been about the games. First and foremost, I am loyal to games, to series. Right. It doesn't matter right. about the system. And, and now later in life, I'm discovering all these other systems. I didn't even know about much about the PC engine uh, until last year. 
you know, I just went on Amazon Japan, I saw this little mini console, PC Engine Mini, and I fell in love with it. And um, I think that's the wonder of games. You know, if you discover a certain game, you can discover another system and then yeah. a whole library of other games. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely against the whole fanboy term and, you know, being aligned to whatever console. Um, admittedly, I haven't had an Xbox since 2010 because I had the three red lights about seven times. Mm-hmm. And I used to play Gears of War endlessly, you know, for two years straight, all I'd play after work was Gears of War. And I ended up killing off a load of Xbox 360s, but due to a problem that console had. And then the Red Ring of Death, yes. Yeah, so then I just swore by the PS3 at that point and then getting whatever Nintendo console was coming out, you know, at the, any given time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely about the games for us. I think you agree with that, don't you, John? It's about the games. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always had the consistent the the batch of consoles that's been out at any given time. I've played on them, you know. I've I've tried to acquire them all as they've come out. I've been every. There hasn't been a generation where I haven't gone after being platform agnostic. Um, obviously, again, though, it, it the content is what affects me. So, on when we were in the PS2 generation, I initially was very much leaning towards Sony because of games like Silent Hill 2, Final Fantasy 10. Then GameCube came along, gave us Resident Evil Zero, Resident Evil One, Resident Evil Four, three of my all-time favorite games. Metroid yes. Prime, greatest yes. first-person shooter, in my opinion, of all time. Um, so I fell in love with the game. Uh-huh. Wind Waker is my favorite Zelda game, including that beats Breath of the Wild for me. Um, wow. And then Xbox, you know, you had Halo, Halo 2. Halo 2 is arguably my second favorite first-person shooter of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I love the multiplayer of that. Yeah, and then we moved on to <laughs> PS3. I remember, like, I got the 360 first, and I was addicted to Lost Planet online. I got in the world rankings. I got up into the top numbers. Uh, that was the, my first nice. experience of online gaming. And then um, <laughs> Resident Evil 5, absolutely adored it. Played it on 360. Got, again, I got ranked on that one. And then the PS3 came out. Um, well, I got a PS3, sorry. And uh, there just wasn't anything to play for the longest amount of time. No, but then these, no, I agree. these titles started to come. And once they started yeah. to come, they get you know, Uncharted 2, you know, yeah, some of the yeah. more obscure Japanese titles. Um, it started to give me that kind of story-driven kick. And then what happened was the Xbox I found tended to go more multiplayer, yes. which wasn't really my, I really liked stories, like I said, so I kind of yes. lent away from it. And then obviously that just got even more apparent with the PS4. Uh, I mean, the PS4 felt like the only platform for me that had these story driven games once the Xbox won. I mean, I was really excited for Scalebound and that got canned. Yeah, oh, that was. Uh, yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. That was the nail in the coffin for me with the Xbox One. I'm I afraid. would have bought an Xbox One for that game. So, yeah, I, mean, I would have yeah. kept my Xbox One for that game, but unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. that was the that was the nail in the coffin for me. Well, um, I bought it. I, I bought my Xbox One for Halo Five based on the advertising campaign, and was I disappointed? I bet you were. Yeah, I, bet you were. <laughs> I mean, the Xbox One feels like an, an enigma because Xbox did so much right with the 360 in my eyes, and then they did so much wrong with the Xbox One. Yeah. Um, and it feels like as a company, they're definitely improving now. Uh, yes. In terms of, I just there's a few things I would change, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about it. Yes. Um, okay. So you know, and it's funny that you mentioned Splatterhouse because when I was a kid, um, and I remember seeing like I, I believe it was the, it was um, the Turbo Graphics 16 was the console that had you know, which is I think the PC Engine, the original. Yeah. That's yeah, the American the name. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, Turbo graphics, you know, of course, has to be that for America. But, um, you know, like Splatterhouse on that console, it almost made me want to buy one. But at the time, it was like $700 for the the machine. Yeah, it was really overpriced, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, for for us over here, and and you know this was in the late '80s, early '90s, so that was not something that I could afford. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's that game in particular really left like a it it just the visuals of it because I had seen it on TV on like this this show that they were doing at the time that that showcased video games and stuff, and and I had seen it and I was just like so impressed by the graphics and so impressed by like the just the fact that you're playing this guy who's like a He's almost like Jason from Friday the yeah. 13th, but he's a good guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and then, yeah. of course, they, they remade the game later on, years yeah. later, on 360 and PS3, and that was Yeah, we, we don't talk about the remake. Yeah, let's... Yeah, okay. In the Splatterhouse circles. But the, yeah, the original, let's not. <laughs> the original is such a classic. It's, what's incredible, though, is, I mean, the version you got was highly censored. I mean, I'm the sure. Kabuki... The Kabuki mask, they changed it to an, like a red color. Um, yeah, and it in was, the, in, yeah. yeah, they and in the original game, you you fight an upside down crucifix. Uh, <laughs> and, and in the American, they changed it. Oh, there's so boy. much censorship. It, yeah, exactly. In the oh, American yeah. version, it got really heavily censored. So at the yeah. time, before the internet, uh, when I was chasing down these games, the only way to get the uncensored original was to get an FM Towns Marty. And I mean, mm-hmm. that system was so difficult to find. And you had to I'm like, sure. at, the, at the time, we didn't have ways of fixing the drive belts and all these various oh means. So, um, and I managed to acquire, I mean, I, I was 15. So, you know, have, you know, 15 years ago now. Um, and I was tracking down using all my money I could find to buy this big box Splatterhouse on the PC and mm-hmm. uh, on the FM Towns Marty. And it was such an obscure thing to find. And I managed to get one from Japan at an auction in the end on Yahoo auctions. Um, and it was wow. just to play the just to play the uncensored <laughs> version. It was the only way to do it because the PS3 version didn't exist. Emulators mm-hmm. were barely a thing at this stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were lucky if you could find an emulator that would even run, you know, SNES games, let alone um, what yeah. we have now. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so if I had to ask you what your favorite game of all time is, what would you say? Or what was the game that cemented you as a gamer that sort of like made you a gamer? For me, it's Streets of Rage 2. Oh, Streets of Rage 2. <laughs> for me, it was that game. That game was the one where I was like, okay, I'm a I'm a gamer for life. I just I love everything about it. That was it. Can I go first, John? Are, are yeah, go right? ahead. Yeah, yeah, I need to think. <laughs> you know, uh, Streets of Rage 2 is one of the the first tv games i played because i had a game boy for a few years before um i ever got a super nintendo or mega drive but streets of age 2 that was that was one of the first games i had for the genesis mega drive it it i, I can still play it to this day and still get them same feelings you know it, yes. it, it, it is it's like the epitome of a perfect game in a sense it's there's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with the game it, it's absolutely flawless it's beautiful yeah uh, you know, uh, last year I was driving to Ikea and I, I randomly I decided to burn the, the soundtrack to a CD and just play it in the oh, car. Yes. Because it, it was just a wicked soundtrack. Um, yes. But the game the game that defines me, I, I'd say my favourite game of all time is Final Fantasy X. Um, it, it, you know, if I could transport to a world, another world, I'd go to Spira. But um, mm-hmm. I think... Me personally, um, Final Fantasy VII 
was the game that really transformed me as a gamer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, playing 2D scrolling platformers, fighters, and, you know, The Legend of Zelda and that stuff on the Super NES and, you know, Genesis and that. Um, when I got the PlayStation 1, uh, Final Fantasy 7 was one of the first games that I, that I bought. Mm -hmm. And I'd never played anything like it before. I'd never played a JRPG. Um, I'd never seen CGI cutscenes before like this. I th yeah. You know, it, you know, those scenes look like Toy Story to me. And then I've never played a game where you've got all of this dialogue and and then these turn-based battles. And playing that game after school every day, um, I felt like it felt like kind of going into a second world to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I felt like after school, I'd become cloud. I was living through cloud. And uh, I don't know what it is, that game, um, the story, it, it allowed me to develop um, a greater sense of uh, emotional intelligence. It, it, and then, you know, that being in this world and interacting with all these characters and in such a way that's so different and uh, to watching films or reading books, it, it was just a beautiful game. But when you get to the end of disc one, you know, I, I won't give away any spoilers here to people who, who haven't played it yet, like we were discussing before we've started recording. Um, I'd never, I'd never felt such emotion like that in my life. You know, the, the, I was feeling feelings that I never knew I could feel. Mm -hmm. And I felt such a, a sense of loss for, you know, quite a number of days. And obviously as a, as a young and growing boy, you know, go approaching his teen years, Mm -hmm. it, it was so um substantial and and then kind of going through the game with a, a sense of I, I don't know uh looking for revenge or you, you know looking for resolution mm -hmm. um it, it that game just set a precedent for me like I, I i then you know started playing some other squaresoft rpgs um even got the chance to play the ones that because there was a lot of them that never came out in power territories you know, Sino Gears, Chrono Cross, uh, Parasite Eve. Oh, man. Yeah. You, you know, uh, we missed out on a lot of games over here, but um, I had a way of importing games uh, back then. And I always used to, you know, compare everything to Final Fantasy VII because it just, it just, it changed my life, basically. It changed my outlook on the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'll always remember, remember it for that. And uh, it's why, like, last year, when... Um, you know, Final Fantasy VII Remake came out. There's a part of the game early on where you end up in, um, <clears throat> you know, the first little town where you've got the bar and everything and you go into your little yes. room. And when yeah. you come out of that room, the sun comes out and then that very familiar uh, theme, the, you know, theme music plays. Yes. I just couldn't, I was crying. I, I, you know, I was, you know, 34 now. I couldn't believe I was just sat there and I'm just, I just start crying for no reason because... That it's brought back so a rush of adrenaline, a lot of memories, and uh, yeah, Final Fantasy VII for, for me in that respect. Um, <laughs> what about you, John? I mean, it's tough, isn't it? Because you could say there's so many different games that defined you. I mean, Final Fantasy VII was one of the first games that, like you said, gave me an emotional sense of scale. Um, I love the original Resident Evil. That game absolutely terrified oh, me and made yes. me fall in love with made me fall <laughs> yes. in love with horror. I mean, because yeah. of Resident Evil, I fell in love with horror movies. But then I feel like the game that defined me didn't come until much later in my life. I mean, in my teenage years, I remember I, I became obsessed with more obscure games. I mean, Shadow of the Colossus, everyone was playing 
completely different titles and I fell in love with that title but the one that truly got to me I remember I was at a press event and this was uh, like an early preview build for Namco and I went in and I was asked to test a brand new game and absolutely nobody was playing on it and I went and sat down I started playing it and that game was Dark Souls and um, I just became I just became enamored with it and me and the Namco guy were chatting about it and he said uh, you know nobody's really played on it and I, I sat there for like hours just playing it with him having a chat with him and then I bought that game and I must have put over a thousand hours into Dark Souls. Um, I, Dark Souls is the game that changed my life and my perspective on the medium and how important it is to preserve the medium. Before I kind of, I never took, I never respected that, you know, the depths of story that you can tell a story without telling a story, you know, the hidden lore of the games, the world, everything about it, you know, even though it's quite a, it's quite a sullen, dark, you know, foreboding title, but everything about it just like resonated with me. I mean, it probably came at a really important time in my life. So it kind of helped me through a lot, um, you know, and then I became, I got like a sense of achievement by helping other people endlessly, but just hours every night I would just sit and log on and I would just, even though I was so overpowered, I would just help over, other players overcome adversity. Um, and I did that endlessly. I mean, I maxed out the clock. On, so I don't know actually know how many hours I played, but um, yeah, a lot. I mean, every day, for, you know, for years on end. Amazing. And then that eventually mm. moved. I did the same with Bloodborne, but Dark Souls holds a special. I think that's the game that changed me, like, and my perception on gaming, like, as a whole, from you know, from you know, loving them to like really, really caring about them and their importance. What do you think about the criticisms of the difficulty of the Souls franchise in the games? Um, do you think that there's any credibility to that, or do you think <clears> that like you know, because it's gone in two directions where it's like people think it should be easier and people think it should just be harder and no easy mode. No, nothing. I, uh, it's a tricky one because I kind of get what the director's doing because I, I will admit when I first got the game, I wanted to smash up everything in my room. I physically could not do it. Okay. It was the most frustrating thing in the world. I even put the game down for like weeks on end. I kept coming back to it dying. And I mean, it really upset me like how I just couldn't do it. And I mean, I had always played hard, hard games. I mean, I grew up with retro games, so they're not exactly easy. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, yeah. I had played you know Ninja Gaiden on the Xbox. I'd got yeah. Yeah. It was just, just kicking my kicking my ass. And then like um I persevered. And then through perseverance and death, I learned how to play it and eventually mastery. So it's kind of in my eyes like real life, really. If you do mm -hmm. anything enough times, you kind of learn the repetition. And now if I play a Souls game, the problem is I'm so desensitized to the difficulty. I don't struggle <laughs> at all. And, and that's why I'm always looking. I mean, at Bloodborne, we got to the stage where we would, me and my friend, we would put no armor on, go in the hardest dungeon possible and just use our fists because we wanted a thrill. Oh my God. Because we had, we had become so desensitized to that's the amazing. To that's the amazing. <laughs> and I, I really do understand the accessibility concerns. And like, uh, I believe like, you know, I've, I was just playing Control on PlayStation 5 and they've added like a, like a one hit kill on enemies and this kind of thing. And I really do understand it because people want to be able to appreciate the story. I think what they should do is they should offer um, <laughs> like alternative directions. So you can either start the game in the traditional mode or you can play maybe a version that allows you to say skip areas or bosses and things like this. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to stop anyone playing a game. I mean, if you'd For asked sure. me that question five years ago, I probably would have been more of a purist. But since then I've spoken to so many people about accessibility. I feel like it's a very important issue and I don't believe anyone should be locked out of content period. So I would say I, it'd be nice to have the options in, you know, like a separate format. So you could play Sekiru, you know, you could turn on infinite life if you needed to, to get past the tough part and just give people the tools to do it. So they don't have to modify it and do it themselves on PC. 
um, you know, on consoles, that's not impossible. So, I mean, it would be nice to see it, but, you know, I chose to take the difficult route and I feel rewarded sure. for doing so. But I don't want to strip someone else of that achievement either. Yes, yes. That's a really good answer, actually. I remember the, the game that made me just totally want to break controllers and everything was the Silver Surfer game on the NES. <laughs> because that game had horrible <laughs> collision detection. And if you ran into anything, you would die. It was a one-hit death, and it was just the most ridiculous game ever. But anyway. Uh, Sounds like Battletoads. That good old memories. Time. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, Battletoads. Same thing. Um, yeah. But you know, I, I wanted to bring up as well um, with with Final Fantasy seven and and ten even. Um, so ten actually, there was a poll in Japan, I believe, of like readers of a magazine or something, or, mm -hmm. or gamers or something, and yeah. ten was actually picked as the favorite Final Fantasy title, and then seven was right behind it, which was interesting to me. I think ten. I, I think no, no. Go on, carry on. I I just always thought that seven was sort of the most popular one, but. I guess not. Ten's got a huge fan base, hasn't it? Yeah. I, I think I it's the. That. I think it is actually the biggest selling Final Fantasy title of all time in Japan. Um, oh, interesting. I'd have to look sure. that up. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Well, really, I mean, there's yeah. so many great Final Fantasy games, aren't there? There, I mean, there are. Seven's yes. incredible. Eight's incredible. Nine's yeah. incredible. Ten's incredible. You know, twelve's yep. incredible. Yeah. Jason loves thirteen. I'm not a fan personally. But then, um, and I'm not I big on 15, but uh, the remake, that was my game of the year without, you know, without doubt last year. Same. Not just, Same. Not just, not just nostalgia Same. though. It was just so good. I mean, it was just such an incredibly yeah. well-made game. It, it gave was. Me that, there's like this, there's some games where like certain moments you go, oh yeah. I mean, like, oh uh, for example. Guess, oh, I'm so excited about the, that the, game, yes. The, 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 there's a moment in, for example, Dark Souls, when you unlock your first interconnected area and you realize the map reconnects and you go, Oh yeah, and there's a bit in God of War where like the the axe swings back and lands in your hand. You go, oh yeah, and that's kind of what I had with Final Fantasy VII remake. Like every moment, I was like, oh yeah, you know, oh, yeah. This, this, is, this is doing it for me. You know, it was just incredible. I think, uh, incredible. I think they definitely learned a lot of lessons from um, Final Fantasy XV with um, FF Seven remake. Um, yes. Sure. Although not not directly from the same team, but I think um, when you look at the battle system of FF Fifteen ff15 um it's just very basic you know, there wasn't any really any skill involved but with ff7 remake they kind of melded that and the old school uh, turn-based system very perfectly which yes. really gave you a, a sense of weight and challenge and that i just remember when i first played the demo with it last year and then you know you've got that familiar start at the game and then when you do your first battle you know the first swing of Cloud's uh, Buster Sword. You felt you. It just makes you feel really good. Like John said, that I had that same feeling that I got when you know I played God of War 2018, and then when you first throw the axe and when it comes back to your hands, that great sense of weight and you know that that release it gave you and that sensation. And the yeah, I I, I did say that the Last of Us Part Two was my favorite game of 2020, but I, the more I think about it. I, I felt a lot more when playing FF7 Remake. I think so. Seven's, Seven's probably, I think uh, The Last of Us 2 is the better game, probably. I mean, critically, story-wise, etc. But Final Fantasy Seven, I felt more. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. when I was playing it, it, it meant more to me. Um, yes. I mean, the, the emotions it inspired, uh, etc. I mean, The Last of Us 2, I, I adore. 
uh, I'm not in the I'm not in the hate campaign for that at all. I think they thought it was absolutely brilliant. But the uh, seven, you know, really triggered a lot of uh, nostalgia for me. But it also it didn't just cheaply do it. Does that make sense? Like yeah. it, it, it was just such a cinematic, incredible game. There's a part like in the later section when like uh, you're um, you you play some of the side characters and you're like fighting off a helicopter kind of tank yes. machine. Oh, I had goosebumps the oh entire time. It was so well done. And and I didn't expect that. I expected it would cash in heavily on nostalgia, but it, it felt like a new game. It felt like what Final Fantasy VII was when I was a kid in my imagination. And, uh, yes. you know, they did that so incredibly well. And I can't wait to see how these, you know, these future parts, because there's so much to come. If you haven't played the series, you're in for such a treat. It's one of the greatest stories in the medium, period. Mm -hmm. The greatest cast of characters, everything about Final Fantasy VII is, you know, is to be loved. Yes, yes, agreed. Um, I, I will say this, though, with Last of Us 2, even though I really did like it, um, I, I think we gave it something like an 8.5 or an 8.0, something like that on our on our site. Um, but when I played it, it was so heavy. Oh, it's a heavy game. I just, I, I felt like, you know, I couldn't go back to it for a while, and I still haven't gone back to it, honestly. No, and I, with the I, first game, yeah. I played it through, like, two times in a row, and I was so, yes. like, thrilled by it. But, like, this one is just so... It, it is, is a very, so it's much. long as well isn't it but and it's I mean, very long yes yeah the story it tells though is like such an incredible yeah. like vengeance narrative and like this yes. i mean the, the first game like you said it felt a bit more arcadey i mean not arcadey but you could play it on repetition because of the, the smaller segments this one mm -hmm. felt like you were reenacting the godfather like every i think it's based loosely on the idea of the godfather isn't it this idea of revenge kind of, yes, it, yes, it I felt like that. it was torturing you through the experience so you would learn a lesson and yeah i, I mean it, it did it really well and I expected to, I'm sure everyone knows what happens at this stage, but I expected to absolutely despise the second character and mm -hmm. I ended up really liking them and being really empathetic towards them. And I had kind of, you know, I'd, I'd read all these spoilers stuff online and I kind of was just like, oh, well, that seems like a silly thing to do. And then when I actually played the game, I was just like, no, I completely understand why he's done this. I completely resonate with this character. He's taken my my feelings and he's turned them back on me and i didn't expect to see this you know mm -hmm. it, and, and that was really clever that was the first game that's truly made me reconsider I I mean, can, yeah. yeah yeah i mean spec ops spec ops the line back in the day where you ops, had to make, yes that did that was good at it but the, the yes, last of us two really changed my perspective and i wasn't and there was a scene in the aquarium when i was just like oh god my oh my head <laughs> like it's frazzled i don't know who to root for here and mm -hmm. yeah absolutely incredible yeah. narrative there yeah. You know that I, I was fortunate enough to stay away from the spoilers that mm -hmm. obviously got leaked before the game came out, and um, I just remember um, I think it was a, a like a really mildly warm summer's day. I got the game, and I was playing it late at night with the window open, and um, you get to that scene which John's referring back to, and mm -hmm. I felt like I'd been winded in the stomach, and. Yes. I needed I needed a drink, so yes. I had an alcoholic beverage, and then I went for <laughs> I, I went out the house and went for a little walk because I felt I felt a massive sense of loss, but I also felt ever so angry, uh, this anguish, and I, I never thought a game could you know also make me feel such anger. So you know, obviously, you know the pure pure kind of rage and I, I think it's a very powerful thing when anything in a story medium can make you feel that way and the there was i felt such resentment towards that certain character but obviously when you know you get to a later point in the game the the roles are, are switched you're now playing that character and i'm then feeling like I, 
what 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 because the games made me feel this sense of survivalism why do i want to emphasize with this character or um do go for all this survival because going back to accessibility i make a point of playing uh, any game that i buy on one of the harder modes just so that i can get my money's worth but as well because i believe that when you play on a harder mode in a game it allows you to get more out of the game it allows the game to flex its muscles and make mm-hmm. more um, use of its mechanics so mm-hmm. with obviously the last of us is a, a great sense of stealth survival uh, getting through um you know a set each segment and feeling that sense of you know that you've overcome something so after mm-hmm. going through all that i did with ellie and then with this character but as you know I left the game for a couple of days. I came back to it and then, um, you know, and then persevered on. But then I felt I, re- I really kind of resonate with this character. I can understand that character's viewpoint. And I, f- I think that's what a lot of people in this world at the moment seem to lack. I, th- I think it, it, in many ways, there's a lot of us, we're very tunnel visioned in the way we yeah. look at things. When you go back to fanboyism, you, you know, if you go on Twitter, at the moment you see a lot of stuff xbox playstation and if you try and have an open dialogue with a lot of these people you can't do it because if you try and come at things from an, a bigger perspective uh, from an impartial point of view non-biased a lot of people that they, they can't have that exchange with they can't look at the bigger picture or look at different viewpoints and i think the last of us taught me a great lesson that in the real world, uh, if I'm faced with a difficult situation or a, a debate, it's always good to look at things from different viewpoints. And I think that's kind of what The Last of Us is. You, you know, you on the first game, you fall in love with a certain character and they did a bad thing. And I guess you can emphasise with that, but then seeing it from the other character's point of view, it, it's a, I think it was a very cleverly written game in that sense. You know, yeah. The, yeah. The different emotions that it makes you feel and that's why it's such an incredible game and if anyone's got any doubts about it uh, and you've played the first one but you don't want to play the second one because of what happens i just suggest you give it a chance and keep an open mind mm-hmm. that's all i can say on that really. it's, it's <laughs> a it's a great you know it shows what games are capable of in terms of inspiring empathy in the audience and yes you know as long as you're open to it, which I know that there, there's some people who who are not or don't seem to be. I mean, I didn't love the second playable character as much as I love Ellie. I was yeah, on cool. Ellie's yeah. side for most mm-hmm. of the game, even though like I knew what she was doing. And I but I was like the whole time I was going, come on, wake up, you know, like like this is not you and this is not what Joel would want. Um, yeah. And I think that yeah. at the end, that's what the ending, you know, the last cinematic of the game or the second to last cinematic mm-hmm. of the game shows is that, you know, she she reconnected with him on a on a deeper, more more yeah, like, you know, at peace kind of level. Yeah. And, uh, and but at cost, peace at cost. At a cost. Yes. I mean, of course. Yeah. She she had to go through all of that. I, I think it was something that she had to do. Yeah. Um, for me personally, like I, I just always felt that way. Like I didn't really blame her, but at the same time, I saw the, the, the wrongness of what she was doing, and I saw like that the other character had grown in the opposite direction, which was very interesting yeah. to me. So it's like, you know, they both were on journeys of empathy, and they were both on journeys of self-discovery. Yeah. Yes. And, and that's absolutely such the the cool thing about the game, which is that it doesn't just 
you know, it, it doesn't give you a simple answer. It, it, it's complex because human beings are complex. And that was what I found so interesting about the game. And then you look at something like was, Final Fantasy VII Remake and it's like, you know, you get the emotions and you get all that stuff, but it's more like a lighter, more positive feeling yeah, in a way. Exactly. So more gaming. Can, yeah, for gaming. <laughs> I mean, you can you can play you can play it, you know, more uh, you can go back to it a little bit easier, I feel. And the Last um, of Us Two felt like the first game that was a, what I would consider like an art house movie. Yes. Uh, you know, you know, it was the first one that crossed. It, it, it could have been directed by A twenty four or somewhere. You know, it felt like it kind of like crossed yeah. that line. Yeah. I like that. I love those type of movies, I, but it, I, it felt like the first one that I actually, you know, there was a lot of depth to the story. I'm, I'm curious what they're going to do with the series. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because definitely. that should be interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like you guys said, uh, with with remake as well. Um, just one more thing that I want to say before we move on, which is just the fact that the story could go in so many different directions now, and mm. uh, and I yes. think I think there are certain characters that know what's going down. Uh, I I'm of the, the 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 group of people who theorize that that like Aerith knows and Sephiroth knows and. And I feel, are... yeah, I, I've kind of looked into some of the theories. I feel like yeah. it would make sense in the way that they they kind of have to force it to happen in order to stop so like a tenet kind of moment. Does that yes, make sense? Yes, like, yes. You know, because yeah. I, I read theories about like the live stream is connected through time and space and yeah. you know these kind of stuff. So it would make complete sense. And I like that it's a new vision. It's not yeah. you know it did go a bit advent childreny, but it did. It did. In the same way, like Final Fantasy VII exists in a parallel, you, you know, that is a timeline. This is another timeline, you know, events will, like the director said, events will largely happen exactly as you intended, but mm -hmm. with expansion to such. And it, it could be that certain set character is doing certain things to try and force the narrative to stay on its set path for a very good reason. And we know what that reason is. And fans of the game will know what that reason is because there is an outcome that could have only happened if and those events had gone a certain way. When Aerith dies this time i don't I mean, you know people should know that by now it's it's like a 21 25 yeah, okay. year old spoiler so people should know. Let's do it i mean everybody knows it's it's part of the gaming you know it's part of the culture but like when Aerith dies in this game if that's where they go if they do keep that intact which you know um it's anybody's ball game right now but i think that if she does i'm gonna be crying in the corner i feel I, like i what, but imagine how much it would hurt imagine how much more it would hurt knowing that she knew she was going to die but she also had to force it to happen because she knew the only way that um she could stop comet was to die and this time you they they make you believe that you can finally change it and then she has to admit that like it is the only way this series of events will allow for the white materia that, to save us all that and was that's my, devastating that was my immediate thought when i played this game was i was just yeah. like you know what it's gonna hurt way more because we yeah. think we can save her yeah that's yeah. the whole thing is that yeah. we think that we can save her and it's probably it, not gonna happen it feels like Sephiroth, there's, because there's clearly more than, uh, there was all yeah. this perception that there's, there's, it's the same guy. No, he's not. There's, you clearly yeah. have OG Sephiroth yeah. doing what he did in the original. And you have this kind of like, you know, Sephiroth that's on a, another plane of existence that he yeah. is manipulating everyone like pawns, trying to 
pro probably from a different uh, timeline, trying to intervene to alter the course of events so that the current Sephiroth will achieve his destiny. So it's it's kind of interesting they've taken that you know transdimensional perspective of it, and mm -hmm. it could, like you said, it could go anywhere. But I feel like it's going to end up killing us all emotionally. <laughs> I think so <laughs> too. And, I, and, and you know, she has that line too. She has that line of the dream sequence where she says, "You can't fall in love with me, even if you think yep. you have. It's not real." And oh, it's God. like, oh God, you know, and that line breaks me every time I see it. Yeah. It's just, it it is so like, you know that she has an idea of what's coming. And yeah. Sephiroth is like, you know, it's it's her and it's Sephiroth and they're both like opposing forces on the same line and they're going to yeah. clash eventually. It reminds me of, um, you know, Lost, the man in black and yes. <laughs> Jacob. It reminds yes. me of they both know what's to come. And they yeah. both know what needs doing, but they're trying to ensure a certain timeline of events happens. They're kind yeah. of playing chess, you know, to with each other, which is quite cool. This concept that they're because she is an ancient, and in theory, she is the um, and you know, she would be in tune with the the live stream, and in theory, she would know what happens in other timelines and realities. So exactly. she, you know, she's probably seen this, and she probably knows a bit like Doctor Strange in the Avengers. You know, there's only one chance. You know, we kind of got to get this right now. You know, all these events have to happen. You know. Uh, He's seen 14 million timelines. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, you know? which, how, how do we win? You know, which one yeah. do we win? <laughs> she knows. Like, and, just you know, one. That's what she's saying. Don't yeah. get in love with me, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When she said that, I was like, too late, Aerith, too late. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, wow, we've spent this whole time just talking about games and stuff, which I love. So thank you guys. I told you that was Let's yeah, sorry. <laughs> No, this is good. Um, let's let's talk about the uh, the lock on journal now, and let's talk about your, your yes. Kickstarter project. And um, you know, one of the first questions I want to ask you is, what are your influences in terms of like um, gaming publications or magazines <clears throat> in the past? Um, what did you guys did you read any magazines growing up, or or any particular websites? Um, I mean, I I kind of like I think we both grew up in the age when the the internet. You know, it was very basic. So we we've kind of come into internet sites a bit later, I guess. I mean, mm -hmm. growing up publication wise, it was always uh, you know like Edge. Games Master Edge. Um, okay. uh, I the only trouble with the, the the magazine in the modern form is it's very um, quickly outdated. It yes. doesn't hold it doesn't hold any perception of um, time, and I feel yeah. like that that is the that is the defined characteristic of why uh, consumer based print won't survive. Uh, in the modern climate, I feel like now um, books are doing extremely well, but only they're more tailored. They're more tailored towards an enthusiast base. I mm -hmm. mean, we kind of looked at we kind of looked at this in several different ways, and we wanted a project that would be timeless. So, if you picked this journal up now and you read it in twenty years, none of the content would have aged. If that makes sense, so you the, the stories will be the same. Um, they're all very personal stories. We tried to share um, shy away from like news, uh, anything that would age it reviews we considered but that was more so you know to help support the journal itself but we mm -hmm. then opted to try and you know imply that as a uh, stretch goal as, as a sign that so the the book itself wouldn't age yes, um, yes I and every 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 journal will be a unique love letter to gaming in various different forms and I, I like to say that the idea of this was that if you read it um, it will make you laugh it will shock you it will scare you it'll make you cry we want to convey the emotions that gaming has made me feel and my mission was to try and bring together a community of people that care deeply about gaming, its preservation, the stories involved, the art of it, 
and kind of bring them into a location that we can, you know, really let that shine. A lot of people have told me, you know, they can't get a job on a website because this website relies on SEO. They won't pick up my story. They're only interested in top 10 anime cliches and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And they yeah. wanted to tell a really in-depth story. I mean, very few, some of the stories we tackle in this first volume include like Final Fantasy VII and its relation to modern day climate change and how um, events in like Flint, Michigan have uh, a very similar to what um, goes on in Midgar. Uh, you know, so we looked at that and how Marco and how these companies are, you know, affecting the planet. But also then we look at the eco-fascism side of it, how like terrorist groups are trying to combat this, but is, mm. what, where's the moral objectivity? I mean, that's a really mm-hmm. in-depth mm-hmm. subject. Most that's... websites didn't want to touch that with a barge pole. And I had a real, um, so fascinating. Yeah. And it's based on a, a line Barrett says saying this world bleeds green. And we kind of look at the objectivity between good and bad of this and how Final Fantasy VII told us a story 20 years ago. And now it's becoming ever more relevant. Um, we're facing a very capitalist driven society that's, you know, swallowing the world's resources, you know. Yes. So, I mean, that the game of websites wouldn't touch that. It. That so, was such a central theme of remake as well. Like they really yeah. brought it to the fore in that, in that game. Yeah. Game. I mean, and, and that, that really, that, that for me, when I was playing remake, that's why I kind of came up with, you know, I kind of thought I really need, really need to talk about this. And I, yes. uh, I, pit, we found a really cool writer for the project and I pitched my idea to him and then he, yeah, and he already had all these great ideas to go with it. And I tend to come up with some really, uh, I'm not, I'm not, so I, I design. And I'm into art, but I'm not the best at, you know, writing, etc. So I tend to come up with these zany pitches and I'll find a suitable writer to kind of like bring them to life and kind of make sure they're on the same level as me. But it's been amazing. Some of the pitches we've had have just blown my mind. I didn't think like I thought that is so niche and obscure, but so fascinating. And we wanted uh, yes. the real influence was journals. So that's why we called it a journal and not a magazine. Right. Because we, right. We, we've gone for like an academic journal style where there's a cool Australian publication, I believe they are, uh, called the Smith Journal. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember reading it about five or six years ago. And every page was something completely obscure. I remember the first page was about Icelandic fishermen. The third page was about plants in your garden that can kill you. The fifth page was about, you know, how to smoke a fish in the forest. And it was the most random stuff. But it was <laughs> fascinating. All these in, these no connected story. They had no connection, but they were all incredibly interesting. And I thought, why has nothing like this been done with games that highlights the artistry of the industry, the stories, but also educates, you know, yeah. can scare you, can inspire you, can uh, give you nostalgia. Like, and every page will be a different story that will make you go, huh. And I mean, if you're not interested in that one, you go to the next one then, but there should be something for everyone in here that mm-hmm. um, we, you know, trying to convey all the different ranges of emotions. So mm-hmm. we've kind of leaned away from magazine that we initially concepted to go, mm-hmm. We've been doing this for a while. I mean, we've been planning this for over a year. And sure. our original concept was, um, so I do a lot of work for like Nintendo print publications. Uh, I work with uh, Ninty Fresh and Switch Player magazine. So for those guys- I just guys, bought some of those issues. Good for good man. <laughs> I'm the, uh, yeah. So I'm the creative editor over there. So I deal with the art side of it. Um, and I kind of figured like, I don't want to do a magazine. You know, that's done. I want to do a journal. I want to do something, you know, we're 156 pages. We're as chunky as a PS4 case. It's a big, chunky journal. And we kind of wanted to cram all. And and again, like the content in there will stay relevant, you know, no matter when you read it. Uh, So, yeah, I wanted to stay away from the, you know, the magazine aspect of the industry and go more into the journal side of it. Sure. I mean, um, John, John, um, I made friends with John last year over Twitter and, um, you know, this started out as a magazine, but, and it was, it was, it was going to have uh, reviews in it. But uh, when we, 
the more we talked and the more we realized the magnitude of what we were doing and you know the costs naturally that are going to be involved because this is a passion project mm-hmm. you know we're, we're not looking to make any money uh, for ourselves you know this is purely a passion project you know like the other um you know it is for gamers by gamers um at the end of the day and um you know uh, we then came up with obviously the concept of it being a journal um you know i work at an academic institution and um i i do graphic design as well so i put together a lot of books and mm-hmm. you know um journals and you know all these journals are all research-based so you have all these different very unique and obscure case studies yeah and uh, i can't i guess we kind of feel like um these kind of stories are normally lost in the fastness of you know the world wide web you know if you go on something like ign or kotaku Mm-hmm. you're normally faced with you know very current news or um mm-hmm. uh, reviews previews etc but then there's a lot of very interesting topics which just get lost you know uh very deep within those websites and we want to capture those sort of moments you know within this very thick physical book but with each um textual piece being complemented by very beautiful um, artwork done by you know normal everyday people indie artists aspiring artists and um, you, you know it's it, it's going to be a very minimalist looking piece as well you know we're going for mm-hmm. a very um, a very unique approach but very minimalist uh, design uh, you know that each section or feature you know you're always going to find something very revelationary um, you know for example our, last week I got um Itchy Tasty, the unofficial uh, Resident Evil history by Alex A. Neal, uh, who is also writing for us, um, mm-hmm. doing a Resident Evil retrospective. And all of this stuff I was reading about, the history of the development of Resident Evil, and I just thought, you know, this is the kind of stuff I think we should put in this sort of book. But obviously, we're going to have loads of different topical matters. And um, I guess we want to have something that records you know many aspects of gaming history not just development side of things but also different perspectives on certain topical issues like john's just mentioned with final fantasy 7 and then you know we'd love for this book to like be kind of like reference material that you'd find in universities or libraries you know stuff that's going to be timeless so that you know if you show it to a friend or something or you read it in like 10 or 20 years time there's, there's going to be something that's, you know, it's not aged. So we decided to take out reviews and, you know, this, this is a fold very much into, you know, a very big scope project. You know, it started as something kind of different. But so over the past year, we have really refined this into what it is that you see on Kickstarter today. Mm-hmm. And we absolutely look forward to getting this in people's hands because the production values and also the quality of the paper, we want this to be a very... You know, something that will sit proudly on your shelf, whether that's, you know, in with all your other books or on display, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So we are really looking forward to getting this to people. I think a lot of people are going to be pleasantly surprised by what they find and discover within each volume. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it, it's going very well and <laughs> very excited about the future. So that actually touched on a couple of things that I was going to ask about, which is uh, the tone of the of the journal as well as the design sort of philosophy behind it. Um, so you guys actually answered those questions very well. Um, I'm, no, no, that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, does it, I mean, design wise, I kind of um, I'm a bit of a 
freak for design. So I wanted to yeah. kind of uh, come up with some something a bit, you know, a bit more contemporary that isn't necessarily done as much in this industry, especially magazines. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, I kind of, we're kind of design forward really in terms of that <laughs> content. Um, and like Jay, and like Jason said, the uh, the actual funding itself, the the Kickstarter total, is will literally just fund the content um, and the the production. There is no margin in there. Um, wow. We will obviously produce extra copies, but that is to ensure that everyone involved is paid. Mm-hmm. Um, so that pays every you know every writer, every artist. That pays for the production, all the gear, you know, all the extras. There is no like, it's not like the, the book costs half of that, and where you know that is. That is our. We we wanted to make sure we were as close to our break even as we feasibly could be, sure. uh, just you know to make sure we got this out the door. It's difficult when you're you know you're new, you're establishing yourself. Uh, I mean, we we launched into this with absolutely no followers as a brand new company, and I I feel like we've done really well given you know given that circumstance. I mean, obviously other books have come out, they've grown over years and they've got bigger over time. We kind of had to come out with a because of our higher, you know, our higher total, we kind of needed to come out swinging, really. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you're always fighting that kind of um, social media algorithm. It mm-hmm. was interesting, yeah. like, how quickly it got us. Like, the first three days, we had half a million kind of engagements. <clears throat> and then it went off a cliff. And then and every just, tweet, yeah. Yeah. every tweet we made, we would get a pay £100 to reach 2,000 people. And I'm like, we reached half a million three days before, you know, and that was free. So... <laughs> kind of and the trouble is we I trialed it a little bit and it, you know I'm spent you know I'm putting my own money into it and then I'm seeing that it's only reaching like the completely the wrong audience I'm thinking well okay so that doesn't work so you know it, it's been a bit of an uphill battle but we feel like over time our audience will grow as they learn about us I feel like that's quite an important aspect of this project I mean we're not fooling ourselves to think that we're you know uh, there's ever 99.9% of gamers don't know we exist you know so it'd be nice if we can over time reach those people uh, because I feel like there's something really here for people that care about games and the stories. Absolutely. Yes, involved. absolutely. Um, I, I, I think just to name uh, some of the, some of the magazines that I've loved in the past too, uh, that I wanted to, to mention on this, um, which I did mention in the from gamers interview with Andrew as well um, are uh, like EGM is one game players yeah. is another game fan. Of course. I love them, even though, you know, like colorful layouts were kind of my thing, but um but I also like the minimalist design and and the the kind of aesthetic that Edge and Next Generation went for and um, and there was a magazine called Gamers Republic, okay, that uh, that was an offshoot of Game Fan. It was the same guy who published Game Fan, and then when the editorial shakeup happened, he moved on to Gamers Republic, and um, his design philosophy for the magazine was sort of to to kind of make it in line with the Designers Republic, who did the Wipeout games, who did the art direction for that. And so it was a lot of like, it was an interesting sort of uh, a combination of like the regular magazine layouts and lots of screenshots and everything. And also um, they had little elements of like Designers Republic inspired, like little things happening on the page, which I loved because uh, I'm a big fan of their of their house. I don't know if they're still around or, or not, but um, I think they still are. But, you know, it's it's like, for me, it's kind of like, if you can combine the two, it's very interesting. Like if you have awesome artwork and you have also like minimalist design, which is very eye-catching and cool looking, it works for me. So it sounds like lock-on for me is going to be just, it's going to hit that spot. I'm a real, um, I'm a real fan of like fonts and like, uh, you know, overall design. So like 
our yeah. fonts, some of the fonts we're using are absolutely incredible. I mean, we've kind of designed some of our own fonts, which yeah. I'm working on. Um, in terms of we're doing a cool article on the Nintendo PlayStation with Adam Korolev. Yes. And um, I've been in the process of remastering the original logos myself and vectoring them. Like, so the, the original mm. Nintendo PlayStation had a rainbow colored PlayStation logo on the top. So I vectored that into a high res asset and I'm currently remastering some of the old PlayStation logos. That's so, um, cool. so obviously they'll be displayed <laughs> in the book, you know, in like a gallery yeah. format. Um, and again, in terms, we don't use as many screen, well, we don't use many screenshots because obviously we've sure. gone more towards the art angle. Yeah. So every, you know, we've commissioned a series of incredible artists and that sure. will continue for our every volume. We'll be looking to get, you know, bespoke artwork made that really allows these articles, et cetera, to sing. That's, um, that's awesome too. I love artwork inspired by games as well. Like that's one of my favorite things yeah. to do at cons is just to walk through artist alley and just see everything that's inspired yeah, by. I, and it's amazing to support these artists. I mean, yeah, I, ha I hate this concept of artists being paid in exposure or not paid at all, et cetera. So it's nice yeah. to go to, I mean, I've been working with indie artists now for a while with Switch Player and uh, Ninty Fresh. So for mm -hmm. me to then do a whole book filled with them, yes. uh, you know, that's kind of in a way why our budget has been, you know, stretched somewhat because we've, you know, wanted to make sure that everyone, you know, every page had, you know, to a degree, every feature has bespoke artwork. And, yes. um, yeah. you know, we really pushed the bar. I mean, our covers were hand painted by uh, Alessio. He, uh, yes, they're oil. I, I mean, saw he that. them in oil. They're absolutely incredible. And, he, you know, he did us a huge favor with those and going forward, all of our covers are going to be, you know, really artistic. So. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, Jason, did you have anything to add to that? I just wanted to touch on, um, you know, uh, with, with lock on, uh, there's going to be a massive sense of, uh, community for us. So, you know, a lot of our content is going to come from, um, you know, indie artists, um, and writers, you know, aspiring talent. We, we, we want to position ourselves as a obviously a compelling product mm -hmm. but also a platform for you know that aspiring talent uh, or talent that's never had uh, you know any publishing experience before or perhaps even writing experience but for people to have a voice and to also you know use us maybe as a launching platform uh, to get exposure um mm -hmm. i think uh, one of the artists that's uh, done some work for us he he got offered a concept artist job um, at Sony, I believe. Um, wow. <laughs> he, he, you know what I mean? Uh, so we want to be that platform. Obviously, we're, we're going to have some big names, um, you know, right for us over the time. But yeah, we also want to cultivate and nurture talent as well. So <laughs> we, we hope the more people find out about us, they, you know, they can approach us for pitches and ideas and, you know, um, we'll do yeah, what we can great. to help them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, we love all these. I mean, some of the stuff we're looking at for volume two, you know, it's absolutely wild and it's fascinating. And I, I love hearing them because I'm like, I never knew that. And it, as soon as it kind of like, it's inspiring to hear these pictures and hear what people are so passionate about. Yes. I mean, we've had a, we've had a, a musical pitch for volume two. I never in a million years wow. would have considered it. And yet I'm like, I'm so fascinated by this, this pitch they've given me about a really obscure Japanese soundtrack that, and, you know, it, huh. it blew my mind. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I was all over it. So, I mean, we're hopefully, like I said, every issue is going to educate, but also it's going to allow these smaller writers that are really passionate about things to talk about this stuff openly and not in like a deep, dark corner of the web where they won't get any funding and they have to do a blog and nobody goes on it. It's to give, you know, we're going to have a lot of readers. So, and they're going to hear these stories, which is what it's about, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. like... 
it's kind of like our site too. Our, our site is very much like, you know, um, my co-founders and I, we started out with basically no followers as well and, and just had to build up from there. And on Twitter, you know, now we're over a thousand, which is great and awesome. And I'm so grateful for that. But like, it's, it's so interesting to, to see like, you know, this idea of like a, a game journal that has all of this information in it. That's something that you can't really find, like you say, on these SEO focused sites and stuff. And that's something that, you know, I've wanted to do with, with Renegade Pop Culture as well, which is to, to kind of have those pieces, even though they don't really get much traction. I mean, we're so yeah. niche still, it, it's like, it's, it, it's barely any numbers, but at the same time, I'm grateful for every single person that does read it. And I think yeah, that exactly. it's, you know, it's important to have that sort of, you know, more, more, uh, less mainstream kind of stuff, kind of coverage out there because it's part of the, it's part of the culture, you know, and we're all part of the gaming industry and we want it to, to evolve and succeed and to kind of, you know, to, to find greener pastures from a lot of things that are happening in it. Um, and one of those things, which, Hey, here you go. Segue. Um, let's talk about, game preservation and what that means to mm -hmm. you because yes. i know that you know even on the kickstarter you say it's at the heart of everything that you do so so mm -hmm. tell me about your your feelings and and sort of what you want to do with lock on to kind of um uh lock support that. yeah absolutely i mean lock on's a great way for us to preserve the stories and the emotions that gaming give us mm -hmm. um i mean like personally i i'm kind of a big advocate for several things and that's the right to you know the right to repair the right to repair so the right to you know video games hardware i believe should always be accessible repairable so future generations can relive these experiences if it wasn't for you know what we've done with modern hardware that we can now go back and you know we can play snes um fpga based consoles you know you've got dreamcast modifications gamecube and these allow us to revisit yes. these titles i believe that hardware preservation and video game preservation is extremely important to the industry and i Kind of terrifies me the concept of um you know losing games to time so i've been a big Same. advocate of that for a long time i mean i deal with um, i've done some like work with uh, like environmental groups etc to try and push video game publishers to make their consoles preservable more accessible um i'm a big advocate of i don't believe video games should be locked to online requirements um i feel like every piece of software shouldn't be linked to a server i mean i feel like so software should be accessible offline Half the mm -hmm. planet still has no internet access or low quality access. The world mm -hmm. isn't designed around mostly America, which sadly a lot of publishers seem to think it is. I mean, half the planet doesn't, like I said, doesn't have good internet or any. I mean, mm -hmm. was it 36% of America doesn't even have broadband? Yep. So mm -hmm. scary yep. stats. And so that, you know, obviously some of the companies are pushing a more internet-based system. Others aren't. Um, you know, that's why the Nintendo Switch is a good option because, you know, it has offline accessibility, has cartridges, et cetera. Um, so it's a good system designed for somebody that wouldn't say have the internet, whereas they say the Xbox isn't because you can't even set it up without the internet. So, you know, they're, they're parallels there, aren't they? Um, yes, yes. And much. yeah, in terms of game preservation, so I've, I've just been pushing for that. I help out with a site called Does It Play? I mean, we've just made a big thing about the PlayStation battery. I don't know if you've heard of it, but the, uh, the yeah, we just heard that. of it. Yeah, we I'm discovered not happy that. about it. No, I mean, we discovered it a couple of weeks ago and we did a big tweet about it. And then suddenly it went viral. We had five million oh visits. It was God. absolutely nuts. Um, I, can't, and, I can't believe that that's a thing. 
yeah, that was not a thing. You know, it's absolutely it's insane, and it, it, we don't believe it's per it's on purpose. We believe it's a very very poor software engineering. But mm -hmm. basically, when the clock runs out of sync, the only way to resync it is via a server. People on the internet have this imaginary concept that servers last forever, and they're like, well, you know, Microsoft's always going to be in business. Places I'm going to be like, okay. Microsoft's always going to be in business, but they've always already shut down the original Xbox servers. They killed Zoom. They killed their eBooks. I said, they will absolutely kill this server. PlayStation, they've shut this down. They are going to shut down all these servers eventually. You cannot rely on the internet and servers. You know, this is obsolete. Uh, like you're going to lose these games. So it now becomes the job of us, sadly, to preserve these titles. So now mm -hmm. we have to work out ways of jailbreaking systems, replacing batteries, I mean, we've already done some tinkering with soldering and stuff to try and be able to replace these batteries without losing data on them. But like, oh, why, why do a group of like middle-aged men from England have to do this and not the game <laughs> companies? I think there should be right? a legal press. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Like, I, and what's also strange is how like me, like I said, a 30-year-old in England is having the weight of video game preservation on his shoulders and nobody knew about this. Like, and suddenly we're like, we've had like been inundated by messages about what do we do? What do we do? And we're desperately trying to work out how to preserve this stuff. And it's really I mean, scary. Like, what, what do just, we do as no, gamers? Exactly. What can I we mean, do? Yeah. The real only option here is to unfortunately jailbreak your console. So just so you can ch change the time, like you don't even need to pirate software. You just need it so you can get into the kernel and adjust the time because you can't do that manually. And obviously we get a lot of kickback. You'll have it. It was funny when. When we, um, when we reported a few months ago, we were a lot smaller when we did this, but we reported that the new Xbox, when it came out, can't be set up offline. What's the downside mm -hmm. of that? Well, eventually the servers will go offline. There's no such thing as they won't. And when they mm -hmm. do, no Xbox will be able to be repaired, replaced, formatted. You know, they're all going to be bricks, essentially. Uh, once they need a format. So say your, disk, say your disk drive fails, you can't replace it without formatting the console. The console won't be able to be formatted because it can't have the internet and thus it's a brick. So... You know, we made a big stink about this and I've gone to the you know European repair laws to try and force this to be removed. So we're dealing with that currently, like on a more legal level. Um, wow. But like, and we've kind of reached out to Xbox. We reached out to the Xbox fans like, hey guys, you know, you, you're these games are incredible. We want them preserved. We want uh, in future generations to be able to enjoy these titles. And the kickback we got, we got death threats. You wouldn't believe it. And you're thinking Jeez, like, if you care, on, if you care so much about, if you care so much about games, why are you not up in arms? And then we got exactly. called Sony. Then we got called Sony fanboys, and that was the that was the next thing we were so. And then we've That's... just reported on this battery thing. Now we're Xbox fanboys. Um, so you know, <laughs> so... I said nobody call me a Sony fanboy ever again after I reported this battery stuff because I, I basically it, World War Three set. I mean, I had to turn my phone off for the night, and I had to recruit a load more people to help us deal with like the chat and all the comments and stuff. It was absolutely unreal. But that is horrible. as I said, so the Xbox thing terrifies me. Luckily, with the PlayStation, despite it being an absolute ridiculous flaw, those consoles can be set up and function offline. So there is the opportunity for us to jailbreak them so we can adjust the clock. So that is one advantage of the PlayStation and Nintendo over the Xbox. So what would be nice for me and my president is if Xbox, because they're being very good with their preservation, et cetera, and their remastering of legacy titles, and they're doing incredible work for preservation in that respect, if they just remove that online setup, then suddenly they would be number one for it. They would be the, they would be the golden child of consumer, you know, being pro-consumer. The issue is most people don't actually understand what this stuff means, mm -hmm. and they won't understand what this means until the day it goes down. Yep. And there's this precedent, well, Xbox won't do that, et cetera. Well, everyone that owned a Zoom 
or, or these various yeah. other window applications can tell you they will do it eventually. And when that server goes down, there will be currently, what is the Xbox One sat at like 60 million? There'll be 60 million boxes we can't use anymore. So, I, you know, I'm a environmental advocate. I feel that's a problem. We should be able to repair them, play the discs, etc. How much time do we have left is the question. I mean, I mean, it, probably decades. That's the thing. It's not like it's not, you know, what's the PlayStation 3 is now what 15 years old. So yeah. I reckon the servers have probably got, I mean, they've shut the store down. I reckon the servers have probably got another three to five years before they turn them off silently in the night. So we've probably got another five years. So you're looking at really 20 years. I think the Xbox Live was about 15 years before they shut it down. I would say the Xbox One in about 15 years time, they'll probably shut down the activation server. Hopefully by then we've got, we've got ways of getting around that. But then yeah, this begs so. the question, imagine what could have happened if the console had been always online and like they wanted in mm -hmm. 2013, then mm -hmm. every single one of these games would never be playable again. And that's why I oppose, oh, God. that's why I won't say I'm against it. I oppose online only or cloud gaming as the only option. Yes. Provided yes. there are choices and we have offline options and stuff, then I'm all for it. But I don't agree with online only and stuff, especially like, I mean, on PC, Crash Bandicoot just released. Yeah. And you have to be persistently connected to the internet to play Crash 4, an entirely offline single player game. Like, yeah, what the it's, heck is that about? <laughs> it's just DRM, it's lunacy. And piracy oh, is such a God. small part... Piracy is non-existent now. It's such a non-issue considering how big the industry is. I mean, yeah. PlayStation every year, they make a billion pounds just in physical media. Yeah. But like P PS1 took until 1998 to make that money overall. So it's like, it's ludicrous that people can even, like the scale of how big these companies are, you know, and all we want is the games, the preservation. And, you know, we want it preserved for future generations. We want our grandkids to be able to play these titles and be like, this looks terrible. You know, <laughs> this is what want, you know? <laughs> that's what it's about. It's about the blocky characters. We, we want more kids react to Super Mario <laughs> yeah. Brothers. That's exactly what yeah, we want or now. More but... kids react to The Last of Us 2. Like, why is it so blurry? <laughs> you know? This is what we want. So, wow. You know, wow. That's what we care. You know, all of nearly everyone on the team, I think, has a, yeah. has a caring for this. I mean, yeah. physical media. A book in terms of books it was a good you know it was a good way to go i feel because what we're making can be tangibly preserved um and it's not it's not something most of this stuff is unique to us you won't find it on the web you know it's all personal stories etc so you know we're kind of preserving the stories in that respect um but yeah we you know pa extremely passionate about game accessibility and you know by definition of that preservation of content mm -hmm. uh jason did you want to add anything to that as well yeah, you know, in our book as well, we're gonna we're gonna touch on some very you know gritty subjects at times. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're gonna be looking into the, the we're we're gonna do a lot of stuff on retro, and then we're gonna tackle a lot of current affairs stuff. Um, but also, very importantly, we're, we're gonna touch upon you know a lot of real world stuff. Like we're gonna touch upon uh, many forms of accessibility, uh, for example. Uh, we're doing an interview um, with uh, a gentleman from the UK who's an advocate for accessibility in gaming. And uh, this gentleman, um, Sartless Combat, uh, you can look him up. He completed The Last of Us Part Two uh, blind, but made use of it. the game's very innovative uh, accessibility features, which probably a lot of people aren't aware of. So uh, you know, it's it's raising that aware, raising want to raise awareness of many issues and topics. Um, you know, also looking at mental health, 
with gaming, uh, gaming addiction. Uh, you know, we're going to cover so many different facets of things. Uh, you know, we'll be having contributions, you know, from, you know, university professors, uh, lecturers, um, you know, developers, uh, normal everyday people. We want, you know, we want to touch upon all those very sensitive topics as well. Um, you know, not to be sensational or anything, but no. what our book is about is educating people. But also, uh, I guess as well, when you look at the retro side of things, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, someone's perspective of what it was like to grow up with the PlayStation 1 and, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, the different feelings of the games incurred. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we also want people to read some of this content and feel like they can relate to it on a very personal level, you know, even through uh, things like nostalgia, but also be able to relive, you know, certain memories or spark up, you know, lost sensations that they felt for those games years ago. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you can probably tell I'm very passionate about this stuff because uh, I haven't read magazines, admittedly, for years, uh, but I do like buying, uh, you know, books about games, you know, or individual games and even art books that, you know, yes. look deep, deeper within the games, uh, within the psychology behind those games, the design choices, yes. why yes. they did this a certain way or that a certain way. You, you know that that's kind of what I feel we're going to evoke in this book. You know, it did start out life as a magazine. Um, you know, we we're coming at a certain price point where, you know, prestigious uh, price point, I guess, which I, we kind of felt like, well, if we label this as a magazine, you know, it's going to look like it's a very expensive magazine. But really, what we're doing, we're producing a book that's mm -hmm. like a hybrid of that and an art book, but with magazine, I guess, content, which is strictly prohibited to, you know, long form features, uh, retrospectives and stuff like that, you know, missing out reviews, you know, timeless content. Uh, so, yeah, we went with a gaming journal and I guess we were kind of thinking, oh, how, how's, how's the reception of this going to go? You know, uh, are people going to be confused by uh, the term gaming journal? What does that mean? But we've not had any complaints so far. All we've had is, you know, extremely positive feedback to the fact we're called a gaming journal. Yeah. And with that, you know, that helps justify the cost of, you know, what this is going, what this piece is going to be. And with future volumes, it's only going to get thicker, you know, the book's going to get thicker as well. So, um, yeah, we're, we're pleasantly surprised that I've, there was a website that wrote um, an article about, you know, can gaming uh, magazines uh, survive beyond 2021? And uh, they mentioned us uh, briefly about, you know, how we're coming out as a gaming journal mm -hmm. and how this could be like an evolution of what the magazine was, but also a few, yes, you know, yes, um, yes. also be a catalyst for a bright future of gaming print media. Because we're obviously... You know we're, we're passionate about physical products uh so yeah uh, we're very excited about where it goes uh, we've got six days left on the campaign we're very very close uh to being funded um i will say um if you're looking at the standard copy please um you know have a look at the the backers edition uh it'll be the only way you can get your name in the back and um we're only doing one print of those backers edition, those hardcover editions. So it's the o six days left is your only chance to get one of those. I, I saw it. I saw it and I was like, okay, I have to increase my pledge so I can get that because, 
I so want Renegade Pop Culture's name in that book because I want people to know that we support you and we support your your efforts in in preservation as well as writing and and thank uh, you, thank you, it's much appreciated. Yeah, that means a lot. That we love we're really so much. close now. Very yes. really, really close. So we're hopefully uh, we're not taking anything for granted, obviously, and anything can happen in the last few days. So we're hoping that the you know there'll be a last minute push, which tends I've, to happen with Kickstarters. This is going to happen. I think so. I said this with From Gamers, and it happened. And I'm saying this now with you guys. It's going to happen. We've we've we're gone through the they, they call the part. We've gone through the part they call the tunnel of pain, uh, which is this. <laughs> This period in the middle of so Kickstarter is normally you have all your action in the first three days and the last yeah. three days. The yeah. middle bit you feel desperation, sorrow, pain. Like I, I have talked tough. to it's not easy. I've spoken to even comic book guys who who you know launch their comics through Kickstarter and they go through exactly the same thing. So I mean, you know, it's it, it, it's something that can happen and something that can be overcome. And uh and they've successfully funded. I think yeah. Pretty much everybody that we've interviewed on the show has been funded. So, you know, uh, let's not break the uh, let's not break the streak. <laughs> we're, we're not going to yeah. break it. We're not going to break it. I tell you right now, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's done. I'm I'm confident that it will. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know what you're what you're saying about how this could be the the evolution of the gaming magazine. I hope it is because honestly, that's the thing that I would go to a magazine for it wouldn't be reviews and news necessarily it would be more for like long form features and sure. personal personal stories you know which is what yeah. i want to know i mean i've always been more attracted to that anyway and even like yeah. the reviews that i write on our site are are sort of reviews as well as almost like feature pieces on the game because it's so experiential and it's so much about like like me talking about the things that i personally love about the game yeah. As opposed to it just being a dry, like, this is the graphics, this is the controls, this is the sound, this is the replayability, whatever. It's it's not yeah. so much about that to me. It's more about how the game affects me on a personal level. And I think that that's what people want to read, because I think we're all sick and tired of the checklist. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. Just, I think it's most so of old us hat are. now. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um but anyway, yeah. So, you know, uh, one last thing about the, the book, the journal. Um, uh, who are some of your team members that you have? Can you can you kind of tell us a little bit about like yeah um, sure yeah about the persons that you yeah so I mean yeah in terms of the main team we've also got um, Sean and Ben who also work with Ninty Media um, yes. they've come over to give me a very helpful hand in terms of uh, you know social media like acquiring content mm-hmm. um, and it's I. I'm a bit scatty, so like I kind of uh, a bit like ADHD. I got a million things going on at once, so it's been really helpful to have a, a group a group of people that can kind of like help me, you know, arrange it all into a feasible order. Um, obviously, you know, Jason's been incredibly helpful, um, and then in terms of like the written content, um, we have some amazing authors. Um, you know, we've got John Linneman from Digital Foundry. Um, Adam Korolik, My Life in Gaming, um, Alex O'Neill, who's just published Itchy and Tasty, The History of Resident Evil, he's coming in. Andrew Dickinson, who writes Dreamcast Years. Um, you know, so many incredible writers, which I've been lucky enough to know most of them already, uh, you know, from different projects and stuff. And they were more than happy to, you know, come aboard and lend us a hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and lo- Lost in Cult, for me, me and my um, me and my partner, Elisa, we, uh, we set it up with like 
real like we spoke about preservation before but lost in cult is uh, lock on is our first product so mm-hmm. the plan will be it won't just you know we'll be doing lock on hopefully far into the future but we'll also be branching out into other methods of preservation um, awesome. so you know there's hopefully big plans afoot and this is our maiden project so it's only going to grow from here that's awesome all right uh jason did you want to add anything about the uh about the various people that you have contributing to the mag- to the journal, I should say. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. You know, we when we started this, um, you know, me, me and John, uh, we we created a list of different topics we wanted to cover, like a pitch list kind of thing. So, you know, we've always got a well to get water from, so to speak. And um, we're just thinking, like, who would we want to write this content? And... Uh, you know, when it was just the two of us um, doing this initially, you know, we were reaching out to a lot of developers and um, obviously some of them are not allowed to say anything without uh, Sony's permission. And then, you know, mm-hmm. we think about what, what writers can we go to? I mean, John, John's been in this industry for a long time. Uh, I, I'm, I've come from nowhere, basically. I'm just a guy that studied video games at university. I'm a graphic designer. I made friends with the person at the right time in the right place, you know, we, cause we, me and John share a lot of the same values and we've had a lot of similar gaming experiences, but, you know, we, we're both, you know, into largely, you know, the same games and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously as time's gone on, we've cultivated, um, a really unique list of, um, talent, you know, to contribute towards, especially this first volume, um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of who we've got covering our PS1 section. Uh, one of my favourite YouTubers, um, Adam Korolik, you know, he's going to be talking about the, the Nintendo PlayStation prototype for yeah. us. You know, as he is probably one of the only people on Earth to actually sit down and play on it. And then, you know, we've got all these extraordinary writers, you know, doing all this unique content for us you know, uh, alongside some of the, you know, well-known YouTubers. Um, so, yeah, I'm really proud of that. And all I can say is, uh, please check out the Kickstarter. Six days to go. And um, hopefully uh, we can get over that line. <laughs> yes, we're going to get you there. Don't worry. We oh, will. oh, thank we you. Will. We will. It's going <laughs> to happen, guys. It's going to happen. All right. So um, just maintain that positive energy. We're going to make it happen. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, uh, you know, you have put this book on my radar here, this itchy, tasty, the unofficial history of Resident Evil. I have to read Great this one. Now. So need to get it. Um, all right. So, yeah, I don't want to keep you guys for much longer because we spent a long time just talking and, and reminiscing and having fun. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, lock on just all I can say is it sounds like something that's right up my alley. It sounds like uh, a book that I'm going to love so much and enjoy reading over and over and over. And that's why I got both physical editions because <laughs> I know oh, that sorry. one of them is going to be read a lot and I don't want that hardback getting all, t- you know, uh, weathered <laughs> and, and worn out. So uh, that's going to be a lot of fun to, to check over. Um, so thank you guys so much for joining no us. Thank you for, you know, working on this project. And, uh, and I hope that, you know, maybe at some point, maybe we can uh, have you back on as well and talk yeah. more about game preservation and see how that's yeah, going absolutely. along. And um, absolutely, you know, I uh, maybe bring in some of my other uh, arcade co-hosts and and you know we can just have a, a full show one day. 
hopefully sure. that'll happen. But um, yeah, so thank you very much. And we will be posting a link to the Kickstarter, of course. And please, please, everybody out there listening, um, please support this project. We need your support and, and we need to get this done and we need to get this book made because it's so important. And, you know, immortalizing gaming and uh, preserving gaming is, is something that's so worthwhile. Uh, it's something that's near and dear to my heart as well, even though I don't know half as much about it as as John or Jason do. But, um, you know, yeah, we we just we need to make this happen. So uh, support the Kickstarter. I will provide the links. And that's about it, guys. Any last words? Any any teases for volume two when volume one is funded? Can you tease anything for the theme of the issue, perhaps, or the theme of the journal? Um, we OK. Uh... You we, don't like have Lomba- to. we like Lombaxes. Okay. 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 I, I get you. All right. All right. So um, this has been another special episode of the Renegade Arcade. Um, you know, we, we funded from gamers. Let's fund Lock On Volume 1. All right, guys. We'll Thank catch you, you later. <laughs> Goodbye. Peace.